Welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Bringing the finest trumpeters from around this planet Earth, sharing their stories that will thrill and inspire your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. Welcome to Trumpet Dynamics. My name is Sana and I'm glad you've joined us on today's episode. In a few moments, you'll hear my husband James Newcomb's interview with David Dash. David is an instructor at North Carolina School for Art and is currently on a one-year assignment with North Carolina Symphony. In James's interview with David, you'll hear tips on balancing self-criticism with music making, dealing with performance anxiety, effective practice strategies, and much more to take you from good to unforgettable. As a reminder, we invite you to subscribe to our email newsletter. It is called Infotaining. It contains valuable information related to your music or business career in a fun and digestible format. Kind of like eating a hot dog and getting the nourishment of broccoli. At any rate, type in trumpetdynamics.com into your browser to subscribe to James's newsletter and to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And now, without any further ado, here is my husband James Newcomb's interview with David Dash. Sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. And what a thrill it is to have on the show today. We have David Dash. David is the current associate principal trumpet of the North Carolina Symphony, playing in the Great Concert Hall in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, he's also the uh, professor at the Uni- University of North Carolina School of the Arts and um, also wrapped up a thrilling session with the Apex Trumpet uh, Symposium. So great to have you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Really honored that you uh, you asked me to be part of this. Well, I tell you what, because I, I'm not huge on social media because I have my own reservations about social media in general, but I do, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook every now and then just to check things out. And it seems like every single time I'm on Facebook, there's David Dash posting something new. And so you're just, <laughs> you're always, you, you seem to have a, a strategy or I don't know what your thing is, but you're always posting something on there. And that's actually really motivating because when I see it, I'm like, man, what am I doing? I got to I got to do something too. So I appreciate your diligence on that. That's really, really cool. Yeah, thanks. You know, a lot of that comes from Mary, my wife, Mary Elizabeth Bowden, who um, makes it a goal to post every day something. You know, maybe it's just a picture, but a lot of it is playing actual playing clips. Uh, and I saw the, the incredible benefit that that had, um, you know, in, in terms of her interaction with other trumpet players and, um, and students. And uh, she's gotten concerts booked because of her um, posting on social media. And so it's so that that part of the kind of career building. Uh, thing is important, but it's also important for me in terms of my own development. You know, like whenever I, I put something up on social media, I work really hard to make it sound good. And uh, so it, it just helps me become a better player. It's, it's made my ears more refined. You know what I realized about if I can just put on a Facebook Live while I'm practicing, I'm going to be practicing anyway. So why not just put it on Facebook Live? And the cool thing about that is that, you know, I'm practicing. So nobody expects perfection. 
And I don't, I don't expect perfection. I expect to be making mistakes because that's, that's why, that's why you practice. You work through those mistakes, but at the same time, you're doing what you'd be doing ordinarily, but then you have an audience. So you, you have a little bit of that, that dynamic of people are watching. The expectations are low, but you just have, it, it just adds that element of people are listening. And so, I don't know, you're kind of on your guard a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I don't do a lot of the live thing. I, I have done that a few times, um, most warm up kind of stuff. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've been inspired also by uh, Tom Hooten's, not just his playing, of course, but the, the kind of educational aspect of his, uh, of what he's doing. And also his wife, Jen Murata, does a fantastic series. She goes, she's going through the entire, you know, at the back of the Arvin book, they have the, the art of phrasing, all those little tunes. She, so she has a great series where she uh, does like an educational element. She talks about what, you know, pitfalls, something to look for, and then she plays through it. It sounds beautiful. So, um, you know, that's a direction that I think I want to go in a little more, you know, uh, for example, I've been going, you know, the Chickowitz uh, flow study etudes, not the long tone studies, but the etudes, I've been posting them one by one. So I just put up uh, number 20. And uh, what I haven't really done, except for one of them, is go through and describe how I, how I practiced it. You know, what I did, what tempo kind of work I did, how I broke it down, what was challenging, how I worked through it. Um, you know, I just kind of put up the final product, uh, which is 100% unedited, by the way. I don't edit anything. Um, so that's that's uh, <laughs> that makes it a challenge. Like, for example, this number 20 has like a pretty big blooper right in the middle. I decided to just leave it up. You know, it's it's I'm not perfect. So like that's that's what it is. Social media has kind of made us a bit vulnerable in that way for all of, for all of its flaws. The, the we sometimes you just have to put something up even even if it's not perfect and you don't and you don't uh, the the expectation of doing something perfectly has uh, gone away and in, in in some ways it's it's to our benefit I think as as musicians and artists and people who are just doing whatever to to to, to do something publicly you don't have to be perfect you just have to do it. Yeah, that, absolutely. What is that saying? Uh, um, like perfect is the is the enemy of good, uh, and perfect is a great way to prevent getting started. Or yeah, I've heard I've heard uh, don't let good enough get in the way of great, or don't let mm -hmm. great get in the way of good enough, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and then of course Steve Jobs said, "Don't worry, be crappy." So that's the one I like. <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, I like think probably so. Probably one of the most uh, perfectionistic human beings who ever lived, you know, but that's amazing that he said that. Well, I mean, that's that was his approach to putting out the iPhone. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just put it out. I think that was his, I, I think if I remember the context correctly, I think that was what he was saying. That's interesting. You know, I kind of, I, I admire that whole tech sector's uh, idea of just like, just get it out there, iterate going to do another 100 iterations or whatever, just gather information objectively and go on to the next thing. And and I think that that's, that's a, a really great attitude. Yeah, I think musicians, especially classical musicians, could learn from that because we think if it's not if it's not perfect, everybody's going to hate me. No one, everybody's going to disown me. And that's definitely not the case at all. We definitely, we, we expect perfection. And if, if anything, it makes us more relatable when we're willing to share something that's not perfect. It makes us more just personable. People are gravitated towards people who are like them. Right. Yeah. I think from a student's perspective, you know, it's funny. Like if you think of the way that I was when I was in middle school and high school and I looked at my at my idols and they're like idols, like a like a statue, like a monolith. Yeah. Human being. 
this is like a, a, an idea of a perfect trumpet player. Um, but, but then like you talk to people and you're like, oh, these are human beings who have insecurities and some things are challenging for them and they have to work through it. And like, granted, they're massively talented, um, et cetera, but uh, nobody's perfect. And it kind of gives you an insight of like, there's a, there's a pathway here and there's growth. They're not just like dropped down from heaven, like a hundred, a hundred out of a hundred, like all of us do. Of course. Yeah. And they're, and they're great in their own respect, but uh, like if you have a bronze sculpture of somebody, that's uh, something that, it, that that captures a moment in time of the of that person. It doesn't capture their entire personality and their entire existence on the earth. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's such an important thing and, and a really difficult lesson for all of us to learn, myself certainly included, to separate this idea of who I am as a human being from my musicianship. You know, who I am as a as a musician and a trumpet player. And not trying to find my my worth as a human being through the quality of my performance. That's a very difficult um, thing to disentangle. I think that it, I think the solution comes from um, reaffirming yourself as a human being and just just stroking your ego and telling your ego like it's okay, <laughs> you're wild, you know, like you have value just like every single other person on this earth does. And uh, and at the same time, you know, you just work and work and work to make your music better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to apologize to the listeners because I am recording this. Not, I'm not, it sounds like I'm in a great concert hall, but I'm not. I'm actually in the conference room at the local Starbucks because my internet connection was a little bit unstable at my home. So I didn't want to take any chances. I booked a room at Starbucks. So it is a bit live. So that's why it sounds uh, a bit on the live side. So I just want to explain that. But I want to hear this. How did you get started on trumpet, David? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So I grew up in a family where music was around a lot. My, my father's an amateur musician. My mom loves music. Um, so it was just it was just there. You know, there are pictures of me sitting on my father's lap when he was playing piano as a toddler, you know, and um, they enrolled me in a, a program when I was about five years old that was sponsored by Yamaha. It kind of combined like Suzuki method and uh, I think Kodai or something like that. So we, we did like work with percussion instruments and we sang together. It was in a group setting with the parents, played a little bit of piano, solfege I learned at a very young age. Um, and then I started playing piano. So I did that until about age 10, I think. And in fifth grade, I started playing trumpet. I wanted to play trombone, um, but my, uh, I was just very, I was always the youngest kid in my grade and my arms literally weren't long enough. They wouldn't let me <laughs> play the trombone. <laughs> so I dodged that bullet, uh, but <laughs> wound up choosing the trumpet and, um, and, and I've stuck with it ever since. Uh, when I was in high school, I, um, well, for, first of all, I studied with a guy named John Morrison who actually wound up moving down to North Carolina. He was in Cary. We've gotten to reconnect a little bit. Uh, and John was an excellent first teacher, uh, very like an excellent musician, um, very demanding. One time when I didn't practice, he turned around and walked out. That was humiliating. Wait, how, how, how old were you when you did this? 13, maybe. Wow, really? I mm -hmm. Pulled no punches. Yeah, he was, he was, he was expected progress every week and uh, kept a notebook for me and, and was a really great teacher. I learned, I, I didn't know anything about him because I was a kid, you know, but I learned later that he only had a few students. Because he was working, he was a band director, and he also was freelancing a lot in uh, in New Jersey, where I grew up. And so, you know, I was really lucky um, to to find John. Um, and then I went to to Juilliard pre college, which is like a Saturday program. And I studied with a couple of great teachers, Mark Niehaus, 
who played later in Milwaukee Symphony and is now the CEO there, and, uh, and Jim Hamlin, who is a, uh, was a freelancer in the New York area. I think he retired, possibly. Um, from there, I went to Rice University. I studied with Armando Guitala, uh, who passed away shortly after I, went, went, um, after I went there. I think he died in 2002, early in 2002. And Guitala was um, just a, 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 what my Jewish grandmother would call a mensch, you know, just a really, really good person really cared about all of his students, including me. And I felt, I feel very, very lucky to have interacted with him. Um, we did a ton of technique, you know, we would never get through it in one lesson. He would give me like, you know, 12 inches, <laughs> a stack of technique books, and, and we'd just hammer at it, hammer and hammer and hammer. Um, changed my embouchure. That was uh, a, a very difficult time, um, but I think that it was necessary. It kind of helped me understand how some aspects of embouchure work. And um, so I did my undergrad at Rice, and then I went to Manhattan School of Music, where I studied with Bob Sullivan. And uh, Sullivan, uh, as, as I'm sure many of you know, played in the Charleston Symphony, New York Philharmonic, which is where I, I met him. Then he played in Cleveland and Cincinnati, and uh, I believe he's teaching again in the Northwest. No, no, no. I think he just took the University of Michigan job. I think that's where he is currently. Bob, Bob's interaction with me had a fair amount of technique. You know, we did a lot of pedal tones. He really helped me open up my sound. Um, but the main thing that I got out of, of Bob was just this constant encouragement to have confidence and to sing the music. Those two concepts were just drilled like every lesson. Believe in yourself, have confidence, take a deep breath, sing the music, sing the music, be creative, you know and try not to think about the technique very much. And, and I think that that helped me, um, you know, really progress a lot in just a couple of years. So from there, I, I started uh, working as a professional pretty, pretty shortly after grad school. In the New York area? Or? Yeah, I, I, I freelanced in the New York area for a little while, um, mostly low level, you know, 75 okay. gigs. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, choral societies, uh, you know, a lot of gigs down in New Jersey, I taught piano. A little bit. I had been playing piano for years, continued to, to play off, off and on, take lessons sometimes and so forth. Um, but uh, I, my first real gig was in the President's Own Marine Band uh, that I got. Let's see, I graduated in whatever it was of May of 2003, and I won the, the President's Own job, I think, following February. So it was a pretty short week after that. And then I moved down there um, that summer. I see. Four is when it okay. starts. So you've basically been in this area for, for since that time. Uh, kind of. I did. I did years with the president's own, and yeah. then um, I had a. Um, I just. I just really, really wanted to play an orchestra. You know, like I. Yeah. I said I idolized Phil Smith. I loved that sound. I wanted. To, I wanted to be part of that sound world. Um, and so I, I was taking auditions, and I won a spot in the Naples Philharmonic. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Down in Naples for nine years, and. Um, yeah, and then I and then I wound up coming back to North Carolina to teach at UNCSA. Well, that is quite the pedigree. My goodness, there's some kind of bug that that some people have where they just can't stop. I just can't stop. I can't stop practicing. I can't stop working. I just I want to get better every day, the same as when I was 16 or whatever. You know, I just I, I don't expect to stop. Well, that's that's cool to have that that, uh, that mentality because, and, and I'm preaching to myself here that I've I've gotten to a point where like, eh, I'm good. 
I've, I've done some cool things. I don't, I don't have to work at it anymore. And you have this attitude of, I just want to keep getting better and better and better. And it's not, and I don't, I don't know if it's really about getting a better gig, but just being a better player, right? Yeah, that's really the number one goal. There's a downside to that, which is like, I have a tendency to not recognize when I do something well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so that, that's something that I've actually improved the last year or two is to to finally be able to say like, okay, I like this about my playing. I like this, uh, this other aspect also. Give me an example of that. Uh, You know, I, I think that, uh, I tend to have good intonation. I tend to have good time. Uh, you know, I, I play fast quite well. You know, um, I think that I blend with other people quite well. I think that I get phrasing a lot of the time, kind of phrasing and expressive uh, aspects of music. And so, uh, you know, in recital situations, assuming that I'm not like getting nervous and like withdrawing psychologically, and I'm being more extroverted than. Uh, then I think that expressive nature uh, translates well. Yeah, you know, it was it was a conscious effort for me to be able to to say that. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. You know, if you have this sort of, uh, I guess you could call it a sliding scale. Like maybe all all the way over on one side is peop- is the person who's like is very defensive and thinks that they do things great and like just never wants to recognize when something can be improved. Right. So they, they like congratulate themselves a lot. And then over way on the other side is somebody who thinks that everything they do is crap and nothing is good. You know, so like I was probably way too, too close to the ladder. And I and I've I've come a little more close to the middle. Yeah, I'm hearing from you that you're there's a level of self-awareness that one must adopt. And it, and it is a process, probably different for you than it is for me. Myself, I'm more. Uh, prone to just say, "Hey, that's that's good. That sounded good. I like that, and that's fine. It's fine for me." Maybe in hindsight, I think there could have been times where I'd be like, eh, "It could have been better. You could have worked on that a little bit more. You could have worked on that a lot more." And <laughs> and in in your case, you you may have had an an, uh, an attitude of, "It's never going to be good enough. It'll never be good enough." And you came to a realization, you know what? It's good enough. It's not perfect. It's not where where it's not ideal, but it's good enough. Right. You know, this is something I, I continue to think about consciously. And the, one of the interesting questions is good enough for who? So if you if you if you're like trying to imagine what the what the audience or the committee, if you're taking an audition, is hearing and judging, like that's oh man, that's a dark road to go down. But you satisfy your own imagination, you know, like you have an idea of what it's supposed to sound like. And if you're meeting those goals, then you're going to be satisfied. And if you're meeting those goals, then, uh, then, then you're probably going to be a little bit nervous. But I think that a lot of, a lot of the time that performance anxiety comes because you, uh, you expect more than what you've been able to consistently produce, you know? So there's two ways to do that. Either practice more effectively and prepare more effectively so that you're just, your level of performance is higher or lower the level of your performance expectation to meet what you've been able to do consistently. And if you think that, you, that it's not gonna meet the standards of the people who are around you, that might suck, but at least you'll know what you can do. It reminds me, David, of this, and this is, this is years ago. Uh, of, I, I knew somebody who was in one of the Marine, this isn't the president's own Marine band, but this is one of the bands, I think in Hawaii, I met this guy. 
And he was, he told me the story about how he, they have this, when they do their auditions, it's like a proficiency uh, examination of some sort every year. They'll, they have to play the core song, the Semper Fidelis. It's really, it's really difficult piece. If anyone's ever played it, it's really hard. It's just, it takes a lot of chops. You have to really have your act together to play it, but they have to play it. I, I think from beginning to end, but this, this, a young man, he was in a situation where he, uh, the context of it, if I remember correctly, would they would always take breaks. They would like take the first phrase, and then the the other guy would take the, the like the repeat phrase of the of, a, of the march, and then he would take the second phrase, the first time through the second phrase, and then the other, so on and so forth. And so it, it came time for this proficiency exam, and he was expected to play the whole thing both times. For, for each phrase. And he just said, I'm not used to doing this. If I, if I were to try to do this, I, I won't, I'm, I won't pass. I'm going to just gonna be honest with you because this is, this is what I'm used to. If you expect me to all of a sudden play the whole thing front to end without, without no break, I'm not going to be able to do it. And the, the people, I guess it was a couple of NCOs who are in the band there said, okay, that makes sense. Just play it the way you're used to playing it. And he did it and he did fine. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was gracious of those two uh, people who who were giving the exam to allow him to do that. It, and but at the same time, he had he he just knew his limitations. He said, "If I if I were to try to do this, I'm not going to pass. I'm letting you know right now." And so, happy ending to that story. But it, it, the, I think what we're getting at is just you're you're aware of your limitations. You put out your best product with what you have at that moment. I think that's true. I think happens when you expect like way more of yourself than you've ever produced and that's you just you you fold you're just you because you, you deep down you know you've never done whatever it is you're trying to do and at least not on a consistent basis like why would it magically happen now when there's more pressure on you you know i think sometimes sometimes that kind of thing happens and you kind of shoot for the moon and it works but like i think for the most part that thinking and that sort of strategy, if you could even call it a strategy, uh, it works, it winds up working against you. Um, so, and, and I think the other part of this is like, you see your limitations, but you don't accept that they're forever limitations. It's just like, it's a process and, and it's a sliding scale and you just have, you have a plan to keep pushing those limitations. Well, I was, act, I was asking you about like potential things we could talk about and Something you said, which I thought was interesting, is expression versus criticism. And I feel like we've already been on this a bit, but is there anything more on this idea of expression versus criticism you want to bring up? Yeah, I, I, I have a couple of thoughts there. You know, I think that this ties in very nicely to performance anxiety <laughs> um, and preparation. And I think, you know, when I was in high school, I had uh, a lot of performance anxiety. And, and the biggest reason I think was like, I had, I had these standards in my mind that I really was inconsistent in meeting in reality, you know, like we were describing, but um, I think that I got advice. It's kind of the typical advice, just relax in the audience in their underwear. That was one I got sometimes, uh, you know, relax your body, take a deep breath, eat bananas. Like, okay, none of that shit worked. None, none of it, none of it, it never worked. It didn't work, you know, but what I learned gradually and, and, and over time was all of those things work if they become habits. 
if it becomes deeper than conscious thought, and it's your habit to take a deep breath and relax, and if it's your habit to take a deep breath and relax and focus on expression, not trying to perfect what you're doing, then when you get up in front of people, you'll probably do what you've already been doing. And so I, I think that, you know, for those of you who are listening to this thing, if you have something coming up, performance that you're a little bit anxious about or a recital or a masterclass or a audition or whatever, you know, like make sure to plan out your last couple, three weeks where you do mock performances, where, where your focus is on the expression and singing through the trumpet and making beautiful music. And your focus is less on the criticism in the moment. Now, having said I've noticed that uh, uh, a lot of people don't want to record themselves because it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to be real, you know, to be, and, and that recording is real. I mean, that's like looking in the mirror. It's like, it's, it's very honest. So you got to record yourself and listen back after and take notes and, um, you know, and, and fix that thing the next time. But in the moment when you're performing, it's got to be about the expression and making music and singing through the instrument and trusting yourself. If I could add something, just practice makes better. It doesn't make perfect, but it makes better. And there were, to, to toot my own horn a little bit, there was a time, I think around 2008 through 2010, where I, I struggled mightily with performance anxiety. And probably, in hindsight, is probably some of the things that you've brought. I just had these expectations that exceeded my playing abilities at the time. And so when it got into a situation where I'd have to perform, I kind of fell on my face a little bit and you get up and life goes on. But I just said, man, I'm just going to take every single performance opportunity I can get. I don't care if I get paid. I don't care if it's for two people. I don't care if it's for one person. I don't care if it's just when I was in, I was in the military at the time, I'm just going to play. I'm just going to grab some people walking down the hallway and say, Hey, listen to me. I realized that uh, the skill of playing with nerves or through the nerves it's just as much of a skill as playing your scales and playing your excerpts or your the standards, whatever it is. It's just as much of a skill that you have to develop and hone over time. And once you get it, 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 it's not like the nerves go away, but you learn how to take that energy and use it for your benefit rather than your detriment. I think the key is, you know, it starts as conscious thought, relax, you know, breathe, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like it has to be, you have to do it frequently enough under pressure situations, as you described, getting people to come in and watch you or just doing performances as often as you can so that it goes to the level of habit, which is unconscious. That's the that's the magic moment when st things start to become consistent in performance. Another thing I want to pick your brain about, because obviously you've shared your your experience and your great teachers that you've had. I imagine that you've picked up some uh, practice techniques, strategies that have worked obviously because you, you you play at a very high level and you've got some good gigs in your in your career do you have any pr practice strategies techniques things that you that you think might help our audience get better i think i would start with the generally the concept of being real with where you are and being real with where you want to be so mm -hmm. Let's say you let's say you've never played the Halsey Stevens trumpet sonata before, and your your teacher's like, okay, hey, uh, uh, I want you to play this on recital, or you decide you want to play it. I think step one is get recordings and start listening, so that you have that end goal in mind and you start developing that goal with clarity, 
you know, and not just listening once or twice, but like listening as part of your practicing, you know, even ideally with the score and like doing the fingerings and like trying to sing the melody and, you know, all, all the rest of it. So there's that. And then the, the next step probably would be identifying the fundamentals that you need to be able to play this music. You know, can you play the high D at the end of the first movement concert C? How fast is your single tongue, you know, for all the uh, all the 16th notes in that first movement? Can you, um, if it's if it's not going to be fast enough, like maybe, you, maybe you're going to have to double tongue a lot of that stuff, uh, uh, you know? And so, so there, there's that aspect of it. And then once you get to the specific parts, like for example, there's this moment in the end, towards the end of the first movement that goes, okay. So here's the big question. How fast can you do it at performance level? Probably, if you're really honest, at performance level, where you play every note cleanly with a really good sound and in tune, it's gonna be really slow. Da, 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 you know, something like that, right? And that's the key is to find that number. What metronome marking can you play it consistently where it really, really sounds good, right? Once you once you're there, then you have ideally if you've started, you know, two, three months before your recital, you have an opportunity to create a plan between where you're at and where you want to be. And that's and that's just being consistent, working through the numbers uh, and and uh, being honest with yourself every day. Now, uh, there, there are other techniques there, too. Like, for example, that same kind of passage, I would probably slur it a fair amount. I would probably create what Bob Sullivan would call a skeleton, which is like instead of instead of doing all of those crazy intervals, you would create a more linear version of the melody. So literally changing the notes and playing it slurred so that you're always thinking out and not up and down. And you're just getting connection and beautiful sound all the time. And then from there, go back to the way it's written. So those are a few thoughts. Yeah. So, okay. So you're going to take that, that skeleton, you simplify it basically. So you can get it to a level that you're capable of playing with your right. skill set at that moment. Yeah. And then eventually you'll just get, get it a little more difficult until you, you finally get to the, the actual, what was actually written. Yeah. I probably oh, would okay. do that in combination with the, with the metronome work. Um, right. I also use rhythmic patterns a lot. This is a, a technique that I got from my uh, father. He kind of created a, uh, a technique he called the VR think method, the visualization rhythmic uh, think method. And so really? the visualization is exactly what it sounds like. It's just like in your mind thinking ahead to what you want it to sound like and feel like. The rhythms are, for example, in that passage, instead of going da 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 da, you would do uh, groups of two and, and uh, put fermatas on every other note. So it would be da 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 da. Right, and then do the other way. Da -da. Oh, okay. Okay. Then you could do groups of four, for example. If it's triplets, it'd be groups of three. And okay. um, for those of you who've never done that kind of rhythmic variation on fast passages, try it. Try it. Mm. Give it a shot. I I would say that in my uh, roughly twenty plus years of teaching, I it has like a ninety five percent success rate on any particular passage on with any particular student. The only time it fails is when students are not advanced enough to um, to be flexible with the notes. And that happens sometimes and you got to go really slowly. So basically when you're practicing, you take out a few of the notes. Right. Well, yeah, for the skeleton, taking out the notes, the, the rhythm, the rhythmic version is like um, it's like it's like separating the passage into little groups of two. And making sure it's like taking a little magnifying glass and making sure that all those all those connections are really good. You said this before this skeleton 
example, but, and, and I want to just clarify what you meant. It's you slow it down to the point where you can play it perfectly every single time, not just you get it to the, the performance tempo, and then you can get it one out of five times, but you want to get it five out of five times, 10 out of 10 times. And then you, and then you take it to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not that obsessive. I think there are people who are that obsessive, uh, but I'll, I'll do it a couple times, you know, and if well, it feels like it's solid, you know, then I'll move on to the next metronome marking. Um, but okay. if I'm, I'm probably not going to move on. You know? Okay. So, so, so if you get it two out of two times and you think, I think I can get this five out of five times, then you'll move up. Yeah. 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 But the print, but the principle is to get it to a point where you can do it because if you're in the, 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 the performance situation and you've got your nerves going on, uh, on high alert, you're not going to get lucky. Right. So you're not going to have that one out of five times where you get it. You're probably going to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. in that case, it it's probably so going to be one out of 20 times that one out of yeah. 20, you'll get it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes you will get lucky and that, and that kind of adrenaline rush can be kind of fun in a way, <laughs> like, well, I'm just going to go for it. You know, I, I feel like the gap between my preparation and, and the performance is, is there, but like, oh, well, let's just do this. Let's jump out of the plane. And I think that kind of willingness to just like, let's see what happens, you know, like it's live performance. It's, it's, it's uh, you just do it, you know, you go for it. And, and um, I think that that can be really fun. Oh, one of the practice technique that, that I found to be very valuable for whatever it is that you find challenging, let's say it's something that's low and soft, right? So instead of practicing it low and soft, uh, maybe consider practicing it not as low was literally transpose it up a fourth or something like that at mezzo forte right and go down by half step so you, so you can play it in the original key at mezzo forte okay now go back up a fourth and and play it uh, more softly and then again go down right same thing with loud and high stuff right go go down maybe even go down an octave uh let's say like the end of uh, bartok concerto for orchestra that kind of terrifying da, 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 well, okay, how about instead of playing your, um, your typical, whatever you do to get up into the upper register in your fundamentals practice, maybe it's a chiclet's full studies or something like that, instead of doing that, take that lick, play it down an octave, play it like kind of slowly, play a slur, and then rest for a moment, go up a half step, rest, go up a half step, right? So you're, you're still practicing your fundamentals, but you're also learning the, 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 the music, the notes, the intervals, and you're uh, building success that music until you can ideally get at the at the uh, original key and, and and go beyond the slippery slope of practicing performing with nerves never ends the fun never stops does it yeah yeah i was just talking to to uh somebody who is a veteran performer and an, an extremely adept musician and i asked this person if uh, if he still feels nerves and he said yes and I never would have guessed. I mean, he, you know, this person is, sounds amazing. Uh, but yeah, I think the nerves are, I think, and I think that's good. I think it's just like, yeah. whether you call it anxiety or whether you call it, uh, Don Green calls it activation. Yes. I think it's necessary for creating excitement and performance. It's a good thing. And it means you care. It means you care about the music and it means you care about your own performance. It's yes. Good. I've come to realize that if I'm not nervous, there's something really wrong. Yeah. 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 I want to switch gears a little bit because you're, is this just a one-year position with the North Carolina Symphony? Yes. Okay. So the other fellow is just taking a sabbatical and you're filling in for him. 
Uh, no, he retired. Oh, he um, retired. And then, yeah, but the, the deal is, I think that maybe because of the pandemic or I'm not sure exactly why they have a whole bunch of positions to fill. I see. Um, so they just haven't been able to schedule the audition yet. Well, what was it like? Because I, I mentioned that I played with them a couple of times, but it's one thing to go in for a, a Halloween pops concert. And it's another thing to go in knowing that you're there on a long-term basis for an entire season. What were some of the things that you did to basically ingratiate yourself with the existing members of the section, maybe the brass section at large? How, how did that transition go? Because they know that you're going to be there for a while. How, how did that transition go? And what, did, what were some of the things that you did to just smooth out the transition? I didn't try to ingratiate myself or anything like that. I, I, I think that, you know, for any of you who are, think, are, are in the situation of being a new uh, a new performance situation, new people, you know, maybe it's just a school group or maybe you're freelancing and you show up. I think that a couple rules, you know, will generally help you. Uh, number one is be prepared and, and do a good job, you know, with the music. I mean, that has to be the number one focus. Um, and then the other thing is like, just, just be cool, you know, show up, show up a little early, say hi to people, introduce yourself, you know, without, being weird about it or interrupting the warm up or anything, you know, but uh, I, I think that like that kind of those kinds of social connections develop naturally over time. And um, I think that, you know, if you're if you're responsible and friendly and you do a good job with the music, like people are going to like you and you'll get called back. Know how to play and don't be a jerk. <laughs> it's like the yeah. two. That's the two magic yeah. rules of keeping a gig. <laughs> right. And, and also, <laughs> I learned this kind of early on. I was playing, uh, I, I used to play a fair amount with the Baltimore Symphony as a sub, and I was playing backstage, and I, was, I think I was playing something loud. I don't remember what I was playing. And Renee Shapiro came up to me, and, and he was like, hey, um, you know, backstage, like, if you want to play back here, it's okay, but just play softly. And that, and that was an important thing for me to learn, you know, because the violists don't want to hear you you know, cramming high notes into their earballs, as you said, uh, <laughs> before oh, they, so, so you're like warming up. And, yeah. I was just warming up, but oh, I, okay. I was just, I think I was annoying people, you know, right. so yeah. he helped me realize like, Oh, Hey, just, just notice your environment. And I think the same is true when you're warming up on stage. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I actually, now I play with a practice mute sometimes when I warm up on stage because yeah. it depends on what I'm playing. If I'm playing something like, you know, pretty mild, like it's fine. But if I'm, if I want to like kind of open up in the upper register a little bit, like the bassoons are two feet in front of you. I might do it for a moment, maybe, but other than that, I'm probably going to put the practice mute in um, just to just do what I need to do. Yeah. They have, they have enough to contend with during the concert. Yeah. They're going to hear the whole brass section probably at some point. <laughs> so <Right>. like be <laughs> kind, you know, <laughs> show some consideration for goodness sake. Not yeah, everybody right. likes trumpet as much as you do. <laughs> <laughs> even though you think they do. <laughs> even though they should, they don't. Right. There's no yeah, law that's the that trumpet requires, player mentality. <laughs> right. There's no law that requires people to love the trumpet as much as trumpet <laughs> players do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're wrapping up on time, but I know that you just wrapped up uh, the Apex Trumpet Symposium, which we mentioned at the very beginning. And I, you know, speaking of Facebook, I often saw, you know, really, really high quality presenters on this. So I, I'm interested in 
how this came about, how did you, how do you book these really great players to do stuff like this? And then, uh, what was the overall result of the symposium? Yeah. Uh, so we started this during the pandemic and, uh, my wife, Mary and I, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Bowden, great trumpet player. And I talked to our friend, Nathan Warner and Nathan and Mary, I can't remember who came up with the idea first. It might've been Nathan like, Oh, Hey, you know, maybe we should do some kind of online teaching thing, you know? And Mary's like, Mary's a, a, a do kind of person. She's like, Oh, that's a good idea. Let's actually do this. And, uh, and I went along with it and I helped, uh, you know, become the third partner. And so we do like, uh, for example, this last, last one that we just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, we did 10 weeks. We did two sessions per week, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. And we invite a number of guest artists to come and give either master classes or uh, like foundations, uh, technical classes where they go back and forth with the participants. We have people sign up uh, as a, on a subscription basis so they get to play for these people in a master class. Um, and Mary and Nathan and I also uh, each do at least one class sometimes as much as three or four. Uh, so, I mean, it's just been amazing. I mean, we've had guests that I've learned so much from, uh, you know, people like like Phil Smith or Pacho Flores or Maria Ferris Bosch or John Faddis or Wynton Marsalis. You know, I mean, like like I said before we started talking, if you if you just start naming like really, really well-known uh, high level trumpet players, like there's kind of pretty good chance that they've been on Apex at some point. Um, and so we've we've learned a lot from that. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed that whole process, I think the participants have, have enjoyed it. We've had a lot of return people. Uh, this last time, particularly, uh, we had a, a very high number of them were return uh, people, I would guess about 75%. And um, it's it also created a really nice little community. So, you know, particularly because these people have returned, like we get to know them a little bit. Um, and, and it winds up being a very supportive uh, kind of environment for people to, to explore and fail safely, you know, in order to learn in, in, in a public setting. And I think that's, that's been great. I also want to mention uh, a little bit about the school where I teach. Uh, this is University of North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, this current crop of students, we have uh, uh, mostly graduate students in the studio. Um, but we have a small studio, it's a conservatory. So our typical number of the people in the studio is about 10, um, maybe 12. Uh, next year, it's looking like it's gonna be a little more, um, but we, we have uh, uh, a really close-knit, uh, excellent group of, of students. I think everybody works hard. There's a good, again, kind of like Apex, you know, there's a community, there's a feeling of encouraging each other. There's a uh, uh, kind of attitude of like, hey, how can I help you? You know, and so that's something that I I try to foster consciously. But they these people have taken that idea and run with it. You know, they hang out outside of the school. They um, they play together outside of the school. You know, for fun, and that's exactly what I wanted. Is this all online? The Apex. A Apex is all online. UNCSA oh, in person thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, our guest has been David Dash of the uh, Apex Trumpet Symposium, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. The North Carolina Symphony. It's been great to have you, and I'm I'm looking forward to editing this and getting this out on the webs for everybody to listen to. Great stuff was shared on this. I really appreciate your time. Cool. Thank you so much. I, I, like I said, I was really honored. You know, I know you've had a lot of uh, amazing guests, so thank you very much for including. Me.
That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet and the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on the show, please email us, podcast at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. And if you haven't subscribed to my email newsletter, it's a lot of fun. Visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombontrumpet.com and you're off to the races. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon. <laughs>